welcome to the Key and the Kite podcast. I'm Adobe Oniwinde joining you from Lagos, Nigeria. And Carter Hedrick is joining us from Centennial, Colorado. Often I go to the grocery store and I'll see signs marketing and promoting products as being gluten-free. And today we're going to dig into the issue of why products are gluten-free what the problem is with gluten for some people. And we're going to do that with Vanessa Weisbrod, uh, someone that used to work at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, where you and I used to work. TFK, we're quite an alum society, aren't we? We, we do have some interesting people that, are, that went through that organization while we were there. Vanessa was an intern on my team back mm. when I worked at the campaign, and it was fun to get to know her then. It's interesting, she mentions this in the interview. When she was there, she didn't know that she had celiac disease. She found mm. out after she actually left the campaign. While she was at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, she had headaches all the time, and she didn't really know why it was happening And so it was great to see her find out what was the cause of some of her health issues and actually be able to fix them. Wow. This is actually a really interesting one. I actually eat gluten-free food, gluten-free candy specifically, but I'd never heard of celiac disease. Um, I know that there is a gluten-free requirement for people, but I had no idea. Um, any, I'd had, I didn't know about this disease. So really, really insightful one. We will dig into the issue of celiac disease and the problem with gluten for people who have celiac disease. Before we get to that, just would like to invite everyone listening to please go to your favorite podcast provider and rate us. Hopefully give us a good review. Those ratings and reviews help the algorithms that drive podcasts and and drive which podcasts are promoted and which ones aren't. And so the more great reviews we have, the more people will find out about The Key and the Kite. Vanessa Weisbrod is the Director of Education and Community Engagement for the Boston Children's Hospital's Celiac Disease Program, where she works to build a robust community engagement and education program. Vanessa comes to BCH after 12 years as the director of the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. In that role, she led the effort to create national recommendations for managing children with celiac disease in learning environments and research looking at cross-contact with gluten in shared kitchens and schools. Vanessa sits on the executive committee of the Harvard Medical School Celiac Research Program and the board of the Celiac Kids Connection. She's also on the executive council for the Society for the Study of Celiac Disease. She has authored four gluten-free cookbooks and wholeheartedly loves gluten-free food. Vanessa, thanks for joining us. And it's a great timing for this conversation because we're headed into the holiday season with a lot of different opportunities for families to get together and eat a lot of very good food. And food is at the center of the work that you do. So let's start just by talking about what is celiac disease and how does it play out for people? Sure. So celiac disease is a genetic autoimmune condition. Um, And what happens for people with celiac disease is when they eat gluten, it causes damage to the villi in the small intestine 
intestine. So it's the finger light projections in your gut that pull in the nutrition from food and helps you, your, your body function and become strong in people with celiac disease. It damages those villi so that your body doesn't absorb nutrition properly anymore. And it can cause a range of issues for people, diarrhea, vomiting, um, growth issues. So kids aren't, aren't growing properly, fertility issues, skin issues, neurological issues. It really can affect any system of the body. And so um, for these people, they have to eliminate gluten from their diet. The only treatment is a lifelong gluten-free diet and a strict gluten-free diet. Not sometimes it's all the time and it's forever. The other important thing that I said is that it's genetic, which means that it runs in families. And so oftentimes um, more than one person in the family can be diagnosed. Um, so this is, you know, a big deal at holiday gatherings because one or more people might need to have a gluten-free Thanksgiving dinner. What is gluten? Gluten is a protein that is found in wheat, rye, and barley. Okay. And so, so anything with wheat, rye, or barley is off limits. Correct. So you actually come to this program um, because you have celiac disease. Is that right? That is correct. Indeed. So what's your story? How has it impacted your life? So I actually got diagnosed with celiac disease. It was, it was shortly after I, I got to hang out with you at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. Um, I, I moved from there to an internship at Cox Newspapers in D.C. where I was writing um, for the healthcare desk. And my wonderful editor there, Larry Lippman, sent me to cover the NIH consensus conference on celiac disease, where I sat in the audience um, for the whole day, took, you know, ferocious notes. And at the end of the day, there was this session on neurologic issues and celiac disease. And they talked about headaches. And I was like, oh my God, I've had headaches my entire life. You know, like, could this be me? And the really crazy part about it is that my mom had been diagnosed with celiac disease nine years earlier, but her symptoms were mostly gastrointestinal and reproductive. And so the doctor never told our family that it was genetic and that we all should have gotten tested. And so I was sitting there like, oh my gosh, this thing that my mom has is genetic. I have these symptoms, like maybe this is me too. And so I, I went back to the newsroom and I wrote my article, which I still have framed today. And it got printed in like the Palm Beach Post, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I cut it out and I took it to my doctor and I said, test me for this. And of course it came back positive, um, which at that point was not that surprising. But to have just thinking back on it, that my mom was diagnosed and for nine more years, I had health issues that were unexplained is, you know, kind of devastating that those were nine years of my life that could have been lived in a different way had I been diagnosed earlier. I remember you uh, dealing with headaches and talking about the headaches that you had all the time at that point. I'm really curious about this idea of diagnosis happening, you know, for you, for you and your mom at an adult age. Is that when most diagnoses happen or is it is it something that people find in childhood? How does that process work? So that's a really good question. We don't know exactly when celiac disease starts, um, but we know that the average age of diagnosis is around 40 years old. But so for me... I had symptoms since I was a little kid. I had seizures my whole childhood, ongoing um, GI issues, never as severe as my mom's were, but there was always something that wasn't right about me. And so I believe that had I been tested as a child, I probably would have come back positive. And that's one of the reasons that after I was diagnosed, I started volunteering at Children's National Hospital in DC, because to me, it was like, how can I let any other child go for so many years as the sick kid when 
a simple blood test could have changed their entire um, childhood. Are there standards for testing kids? So there are, but again, it takes a parent taking their child to the doctor and saying that something is wrong. And it often cases asking to be tested for celiac disease. So it's not not an automatic kind of thing that happens. No, it, it's becoming more um, as awareness is growing. You know, it was only in 2004 at this NIH conference that celiac was reclassified as a common disease. So prior to that, it was this rare um, childhood condition and kids were only tested if they were really, really skinny. So really skinny arms and legs with these very big distended bellies. And so that was the first time they'd reclassified it as common. And so it's taken a long time for awareness to happen, for pediatricians to catch up and to start screening. That's happening a lot more today. And it is gotten a lot better, but still it's, there's a lot of people who are going around right now undiagnosed. I would imagine that you go grocery shopping and read a lot of ingredient labels. I do indeed. (laughs) What, what are you looking for when you read those ingredient labels? Are there hidden forms of gluten that you need to look for? What's that like for you? Yeah. So I wouldn't say that they're hidden because they're there. It's just a matter of being a detective and finding them and knowing what you're looking for. So Thankfully, there's the Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act, which requires the eight common allergens to be listed on a food label. Wheat is one of them. However, rye and barley are not. And so rye and barley don't have the same regulations of being called out in plain English and easy to find ways on food labels. So that makes it a bit more challenging. Thankfully for wheat, at least, it's always called out in the contained statement or in bold in some way that makes it easier. Also, the gluten-free labeling law has made it a lot easier because companies that want to can choose to label their product gluten-free. If it has a gluten-free label on it, it means they have to um, adhere to the FDA standard of less than 20 parts per million gluten in the product. Um, But again, there are thousands of products that are not labeled gluten-free that are safe, like bananas, apples, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables don't have a gluten-free sticker on them, but they're naturally gluten-free. Milk, water, although I've had more families recently send me pictures of water bottles that have a gluten-free label on them. Water is gluten-free in its natural form. <laughs> I did. I actually, this happened a couple of years ago and my, my local Whole Foods had a big display of water and a huge gluten-free banner on it. And I thought, well, that makes sense, right? (laughs) Water is indeed gluten-free. Yeah. What about restaurants and going to restaurants? Yeah. So restaurants are definitely challenging. Um, You know, every time you eat in a restaurant, you're taking a bit of a risk and, you know, hoping that they're providing safe foods. With the growth in diagnosis of celiac disease, I think that restaurants are doing a much better job. You know, one, it's a marketing thing that you can come here and eat safely. But I also think that a lot of chefs have had a personal touch with celiac disease in these days. And so a lot of them really do want to accommodate and find a way for people to be able to, to eat safely. I mean, but no matter where you go, you're always asking questions. You know, even if they hand you a gluten-free menu, you're always saying, you know, is this cooked in a clean pan? Have you, you know, is the surface is clean? Is there any risk of cross-contamination? Is it a shared fryer for French fries? So you're always asking questions. Um, but I think that restaurants are doing a better job today of allowing people with celiac disease to eat in them. For you, was becoming someone who asks those questions, was that a 
a learning process for you? Was there an adjustment process for you? Yeah. So um, I don't know if I ever shared this story publicly, but so right after I was diagnosed with celiac disease, I was single, I was in college and I went on a date and the restaurant that we went, and no, granted, this was 17, almost 18 years ago. Um, we went out to a restaurant. This was the first time I'd eaten in a restaurant since I was diagnosed. And I was like really nervous about this like hot date. And <laughs> we sat down, I looked at the menu and I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to ask the server, like they're going to help me know what I can eat. Right. And so I said, um, I was just diagnosed with celiac disease and I need to eat gluten-free. Can you tell me what I can eat safely? And they walked away and came back a few minutes later and said, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to ask you to leave. Like, we don't think that we can feed you safely here and don't want to take a risk. Wow. Like, embarrassing first date of my life. Of course, he never called again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because a few weeks later, I met Eric, who is now my husband. Nice. And he, um, a very different approach. When we went out to, I, I made sure that time that I had called in advance to talk to the restaurant to make sure that there were things that I could eat. And we went to a Mexican restaurant where things are very naturally gluten-free, you know, corn tortillas, corn chips, beans, meats, all these things are naturally gluten-free. And so I made a better choice that time taking control of the restaurant. That we were <laughs> but Eric was also very concerned that this, you know, girl he was going out with could actually, you know, be safe. And I don't know if he thought I was going to explode or something if I ate gluten. <laughs> <laughs> that I had something safe to eat. And, yeah. you know, all these years later, Eric is still a great advocate. And so if there are young people listening, you know, we hear stories all the time about like people, spouses and families who are not supportive of somebody with a special restricted diet. There are people out there who are willing to be supportive and be your advocate. And I think that makes a really big difference um, in how you're able to live your life. Yeah. Like if a restaurant like sketchy about anything, Eric is the first one to jump at them and be like, no, this has to be done safely. That's great. And it's a great point that that it's important to advocate for friends and family members that might have a dietary restriction of some kind as well. What about schools? Where are schools in this process? I know that there's tons of regulations and laws governing school food. I work at the American Heart Association. We're a big part of that. What's happening in the school environment? Yeah, that's an excellent question and something that's very near and dear to my heart. So about four or five years ago, when I was still working at Children's National in DC, we had all these schools that were calling us and asking us, we don't know how to help these kids with celiac disease. The parents are sending us like hundreds of requests for accommodations and we don't know how to like actually manage it. Can you help us? And so we started looking at where these parents were getting their information from. And what we found was that there were hospitals all over the country, um, nonprofit organizations, patient advocacy groups that all had their own guide to celiac disease at school. And if you looked at what those guides said, you could come up with 217 different requests to wow. ask of your child. And so imagine all of these public schools where they're being handed these lists of hundreds of items to to do, and they didn't really understand. There's no research to back it up. They didn't know what to do with it all. And so they came to us and they said, please help us. Me and my team in D.C., we assembled a group of experts around the country. We got um, 11 pediatric hospitals with celiac disease programs, um, national education associations, public schools, private schools, parents, students, teachers, um, 
administrators, nurses, you name it. If you were involved in a school or, or providing medical care to a child with celiac disease, you were at these meetings. And so we held a series of consensus conferences, really looking at what the research says, like what we believe is necessary to keep a child with celiac disease safe and what can the schools do well. And we put together a handbook that's it's now published. It's called uh, Managing Celiac Disease and Learning Environments. And it is a collection of all of the things that are actually relevant to a child going to school. And so um, these went into effect um, in July 2020. And today we've used them in 40 states that we know about, hopefully more than that. And they're really the basis of the 504 plan for a child with celiac disease. So today when a child is diagnosed, they take this document, which has a template 504 plan in it, and they can use that in any public school in the country. And a lot of private schools use them as well. For se- It may not be called a 504 plan in the private school setting, um, but they can use it to set up the accommodation plan for the kids. And um, we have kids all over the country who are getting safe gluten-free lunch at school school. Um, as I'm sure you know, if schools are giving free lunches right now, yeah. um, and a gluten-free meal is included under that. And so we have kids all across the country who are getting access to safe gluten-free food at school, which is you know great for them to be eating alongside their friends, but it's also a huge financial relief to families who you know may have trouble affording the, the increased cost of gluten-free food that their kids can get breakfast and lunch at school right now. That raises an interesting question. Are there other legal protections for people with celiac disease or are other legal protections needed? The celiac qualifies protection for protection under the Americans with Disabilities Act yeah. because it impacts more the more, one or more major bodily functions. So immune function, digestive yeah. um, function, bowel function, eating is a major bodily function. And so because celiac disease impacts all of these things, they're protected under ADA, uh, which therefore gives them protection under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and access to services in schools. We talked a little bit about being an advocate for friends and family members. You've taken your advocacy uh, in a different direction and have written cookbooks. I have written cookbooks, yes. What is that process like of developing a cookbook? It's like the most fun thing you'll ever do. And then you don't want to cook again for like a month <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> in all seriousness, it's, it has been the greatest experience of my life getting to write these cookbooks. I've always loved to cook. I, you know, I started learning how to churn butter with my grandma on a farm in Indiana when I was a little kid. And I've just always loved being in the kitchen and making food that brings people together. If you were to to talk to any of my friends or family about what I like to do, it's I like to have you over for meals and all, you know, be around food that we can enjoy together. Um, So writing these cookbooks has been just such a joy for me. Um, It's also the last one that I wrote was I did it with my kids. So they helped test everything in the cookbook and you see their hands and all the pictures. And so it was really fun to watch them taste new things and experience new things and just really be a part of the cooking process. And I would say that if people listening are thinking about cooking with kids, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind is like, oh, it's going to be a mess and it's awful. And I would just really encourage you to like, forget about the mess. Like, yes, a mess happens, but you know, we have dish soap and counter spray and vacuums can all be cleaned up and just step back and look at the joy on their faces and watch them experience new things. Because it's, it's really been one of the most fulfilling things that I've ever gotten to do is really see my kids consciously taste and choose to taste so many different foods. When my kids were younger, I would do nights with them, especially if if my wife was on a work trip, I'd take them to the grocery store and say, okay, we're going to eat whatever you put in the cart. We're going to make a meal out of whatever you put in the cart. And you could end up with a hunk of ginger 
and a box of macaroni and cheese, and <laughs> you never knew what you were going to get. And then we'd just go home and figure something out, right? And yeah. and you're right, we would make a mess, and the, by the time the kids went to bed, I would then be faced with you know cleaning up the mess. But it was so much fun to get to do, so much fun to get to cook with them. Tell me about, draw a line for me from churning butter with your grandmother to cooking with your kids, because that's an interesting through line. Yeah. I mean, I think just at a young age, because I was always in the kitchen with my mom and my grandma and we were always cooking together. It was just something that I always found joy in and something that I wanted to to share with my kids when, when I had them, uh, I can't ever remember a time where I wasn't in the kitchen with my, my family. And so I always just wanted my kids to be a part of that. Like you just said, like as soon as Brandon was born, like he was always at the grocery store with me and, and picking things out. When he was two, I had to, I can't remember the, the childcare situation, but I had to take him with me to a, a fundraising dinner for the hospital. And they brought out like a platter of broccoli and Brandon like climbed onto the table and was like grabbing chunks of broccoli and eating them. And John Snyder looked at me and he said, what did you do to this child? And how did you get him to eat broccoli <laughs> like this? Like, he likes the color. And, you know, to this day, Brandon loves to eat a head of broccoli. That's so. awesome. That's very fun. Any Did any of those family recipes make it into your cookbooks? Lots of them made it into the cookbook. Do you have a favorite? Oh, my gosh. My favorite recipe. That's a, that's a challenging A favorite one. family recipe? So I would, probably would have to go with one of the enchilada recipes. We've always just loved Mexican food our whole lives. And they're fun to make with the kids. And, yeah, probably awesome. enchilada. Very cool. You've also done some video work. I have. And I don't know, I think at one point, if I remember right, you did a cable access TV show in DC maybe. And and tell me about that work as well. Okay. So that was a really fun one. So um, Emeril Lagasse was filming one of his um, shows in, I think it was in a Whole Foods store and where he like helped people who had restrictive diets or picky eaters deal with whatever their issue was. Um, and then he cooked with them. So he was doing an episode on gluten-free cooking with a family with celiac disease. And I was like the expert that he bumped into in like aisle four. And so, <laughs> And so I like taught them about gluten-free food and then they like made gluten-free pizzas. It was, it was very cute. It was really fun. That is Um, very fun. But my latest video work, which I'm excited to talk about is, and this, I can't even believe these words are coming out of my mouth are on on TikTok. Nice. at Boston Children's, I, I'm very lucky to work at an institution that is very forward thinking and looking at new innovative trends in education. And in partnership with our marketing team, at the request of many adolescent patients with celiac disease, we have launched an educationally focused TikTok account to um, supplement our traditional nutrition education classes in a really fun and creative way. And so we we launched this TikTok account. I had never used TikTok until this request came in front of us. And now we've posted 53 videos. They range from cooking videos to, you know, information about celiac disease. We've done some on like the safety of vaccines for people with celiac disease, you know, to help people understand that they're, that, you know, people with celiac should be vaccinated. There is no risk to it for the COVID vaccine. We've done information about getting diagnosed and endoscopies. And so just tons of great information set to really catchy music. And And a little dancing too, I think. Lots of dancing has happened. <laughs> I am not on TikTok, but I have been filmed by my daughter dancing with her for 
her TikTok <laughs> account. What advice do you have for approach though? Because you know, there's a lot of misinformation on social media and yeah. these outlets. And so it's been a really great way to get factual, like really high quality information out there for our community that is using that app anyways. It, it's been really cool. We, I mean, the, the patients love it, but then my favorite feedback has really been from the moms who one mom flagged me down on a soccer field a couple of weeks ago. She's like, oh my God, Vanessa, I used to hide under the covers at night flipping through TikTok because I was ashamed that I used it. <laughs> and she's like, and now I can show like my husband and my kids the TikToks that you guys post. And it's like cool because Boston Children's Hospital is using it. That's very fun. Moving forward, as you think about uh, how you continue on this journey, do you have any fun projects in the work? Any more cookbooks planned? Anything like that? No cookbooks at the moment, but I'm working on a bunch of projects right now related to food insecurity in the celiac community. Um, We've been doing a bunch of research looking at how food insecurity affects our community. And um, about a quarter of patients with celiac disease in our recent study um, screened positive for food insecurity using the hunger vital signs. And so um, at the hospital, we're working to open a food pantry to serve some of those needs, working with um, some other nonprofits around the country, the food equality initiative to send food boxes to people's doorsteps and just looking at other ways that we can help these families get access to food. Because what we've seen is that about one in 10 families with celiac disease who are food insecure actually end up feeding their child gluten because they can't access gluten-free food. And so we want to cut that number down. We don't want people intentionally harming their child just because they need to feed them. So looking for ways to get gluten-free food into those families' hands. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's really interesting. Is there a challenge with food banks getting gluten-free foods? Yeah. So they, um, so the naturally gluten-free food is okay. You know, like your canned beans, the, um, the fruits and vegetables, that's all okay. But it's the specialty things like bread, pretzels, snacks, um, pasta, the things that are, you know, normally, um, very cheap and that people would get at a food pantry. They're not gluten-free one, because people aren't readily donating those products to food pantries because they're so expensive. But also, um, what we've seen is that even when there are like gluten-free food drives that are donated to a food pantry, that food just goes onto the shelves and is given out in normal supply, as opposed to set aside for families that actually need it. So there, there's a lot of points where it breaks down, um, which is why we really need better programming to get food, you know, into the hands of the families that need it. Thinking about that, and I'm just thinking about my own shopping habits. When I go to the grocery store, there's now a section of the grocery store that's gluten-free, and then there's the rest of the grocery store. Is that a good thing because it makes finding gluten-free items easy, or is it limiting in some way? Does it feel limiting to have this small little section? That's a hard question to answer. I have very mixed feelings on this very topic. Um, So in some ways it's easier because the store is saying that I'm putting all of the gluten-free things in one place. The problem is that not every single gluten-free thing is in that place. You know, it's scattered in the grocery store. And so oftentimes I think you're missing things because you're only looking in that section. Like for example, there are some larger brands of pasta manufacturers that make both a regular pasta and a gluten-free pasta. And the gluten-free version is never in the dedicated gluten-free section. It's always with that brand in the pasta aisle. And so you would often miss those things if you didn't go to the regular aisles. And so even if there is a dedicated section, I still always advise people to look around the store because it may not always 
all be in that one section. Also, this is a personal thing, but I always think that those sections have the most expensive gluten-free products in them, as opposed to the ones that may be more economical and and cost-effective that are scattered throughout the store. It's a section that I notice in talking about school activities. I was on the food committee for my son's marching band for a couple of years, and and um, we always needed and wanted to provide some gluten-free uh, options for the kids in the band. I remember looking at that section and thinking, some of this stuff is really expensive. Yep. And wondering, <laughs> and not knowing enough, right, to be confident enough to go buy gluten-free foods in other parts of the store. And so yep. you kind of went with what was there. Yep. And, you know, it's helpful in those situations, right? Because you knew exactly where where to go and you had a very targeted purpose. And, you know, thankfully it, it, you could afford to, to buy those things. Um, but for some of these families, they, they really can't, um, and, you know, to spend $8 on a loaf of bread as compared to a dollar for, you know, a normal loaf of bread. The other thing about that is that the $8 loaf of bread is about, um, 25% smaller than the dollar 50 loaf. Is that right? Yep. So typically the gluten-free loaf is a 12 ounce loaf, whereas the regular one is 16 ounces. Wow. I had no idea. You're getting way less product for a lot more money. Why is that? Just the the raw ingredients cost more. And because, and, and yeah. don't bake up the same way? Is that why it's smaller? Why is it smaller? They're just making it smaller. Really? It cost even more. <laughs> so there, so it's a little bit of just making some money on a, on a product that that they, pro- I don't, and I have no idea, but maybe they think of it as a specialty product or something. And so they figure they can well, charge more. Well, it is more. a specialty product, right? Yeah. And so they so, just figure because of that, they can charge more maybe. Well, and if you think about like the normal lo- um, loaf of bread is made from wheat flour. Right. So it's one ingredient, whereas the gluten-free loaf, there's no one-to-one replacement for gluten-free. And so they're blending together lots of different flours. So it might be a blend of like brown rice and sorghum flour or almond flour that these things that are just naturally more costly for the manufacturer to purchase. We've got holidays coming up and we talked at the beginning about um, holiday meals. Any tips and tricks for holiday meal planning? Plan ahead. Um, Start talking to your family early about what's on the menu so that you know what you can have and what you can't. I always recommend, you know, being an active part of the cooking for holiday meals so that you don't feel left out. You know, if there's something that's really important to you, like if you definitely want gluten-free stuffing, volunteer to make it. You know, make sure that you have the things there that are going to really make you happy so that you're not miserable and feeling like you're left out. Um, also, if there, if it's going to be a mixed meal, so if there's going to be some things that are gluten-free and some things that are not gluten-free, separate them so that there's no chance of cross-contamination with sharing of utensils and just make sure they're far enough apart so that doesn't happen. Also, serve yourself first. You know, get there before other people are cross-dipping and going back for seconds and there's risks of contamination. Is it really that sensitive? For some people, it can be, Wow. Yes. Yeah, I didn't know that. What if I'm hosting Thanksgiving and I've got someone coming who I know is gluten-free and I've never dealt with it before? Is there, what's the what's the best thing for me to do? Call them and ask them. Ask them how they would want it handled. You know, tell them what you have planned for food so that they know what is going to be there and can make good decisions about, you know, something that they might want to bring. If you're going to ask them to bring something, don't suggest like fruit because like anyone could bring fruit that's safe to a, to a, a gathering. Ask them to bring something that someone else might not be able to provide safely to everyone. Like for Thanksgiving, like the stuffing, um, side dishes that might have breadcrumbs in them, those types of 
things. The other big thing for Thanksgiving is that if you're going to have stuffing that is not gluten-free, do not stuff the turkey with it because then the entire turkey becomes unsafe for the person with celiac disease. So keep it in a separate dish so that there's no contamination. That is great advice. If people want to learn more about uh, celiac disease, where should they go? So our website is childrenshospital.org slash celiac. Um, You can also look up on TikTok, um, the Boston Children's Celiac account, which is, is really fun. And we actually have lots of videos that we've posted this week on safe Thanksgiving practices. Well, this has been a great education. I've learned a ton. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. It's great to see you again. I don't know when the last time we saw each other was. It's been so much fun to watch your family grow up on social media. And uh, good to get to see you face to face again. You too. It was so good to see you. Well, Carter, I have to tell you, as often happens when we do these podcasts, I learn something new every time. Um, so gluten-free food is part of our lingo, right? You yeah. know, I buy gluten-free stuff all the time um, because in my head, it's just health, healthier. But I didn't realize that there was a condition. I mean, I, I thought it was more allergies, but I didn't realize that there was actually a condition, a disease, a genetic autoimmune condition that required uh, people to go gluten-free. I didn't know anything about celiac disease until Vanessa found out Mm. that she had celiac disease. And that that was kind of my first exposure to the issue as well. Well, what was really fascinating about this is I have two of my four children have really chronic nut allergies to the point where I just, you know, none of the kids eat nuts. I think some of them have outgrown it over time. And I think my 15 year old even very boldly eats peanut butter now. But my kids grew up with very severe nut allergies. So I I remember that even today I'm careful about, you know, when people and kids come over, even if I have adult guests come over for, you know, for a meal, I'm always very specific and very particular about asking um, about allergies. But what really struck me about your conversation with her was learning that her mother was diagnosed in her 40s and it took another nine years for Vanessa to get her diagnosis as a result of the work that she was doing. And when I think about, based on the conversation again and some research that I did, I mean, this stuff can cause some serious damage. There's fertility, there's neurological, there's all these different sort of attached conditions. And to think that people have been, or she, in Vanessa's case, lived with this until she was, I guess, in her mid-20s without a diagnosis and just potentially really endangering her health. One of the things that I think about with her story is that story that she told for the first time ever on the podcast of Mm. that first date she went on at the restaurant. And thinking about that story, one of the things that I thought about was just the role of compassion. Mm. And sometimes when people have a chronic illness or or, or a disease that's undiagnosed and they're going through health problems like that, it can be frustrating you know, especially for the person going through it, but it can be frustrating for the people around them as well. And the idea that Vanessa's mom lived with this for 40 plus years, the idea Mm -hmm. that Vanessa lived with this for 20 plus years, and the frustration that must go with that, not only for Vanessa and not only for her mom, but for all the people around them, 
it's just it's just incredible to think about having to go through that, not knowing why something is happening that's happening. Absolutely. You talked about um, empathy and compassion. I think, I mean, I, 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 my, my jaw dropped when she said the guy she was dating, you know, after the restaurant literally walked her out and said, you know, we can't guarantee that we can feed you safely. So we're going to have to ask you to leave. And she said, and the guy never called me again. And she laughed about it. But like you say, that's that, that was really intense. Yeah. You know, the fact that there was a time where people just couldn't guarantee that they could feed you in a public place and you're disinvited from, you know, from cert- certain um, settings and that people who don't understand that are like, oof, maybe this isn't what I want to be doing. So imagine or even that, that yeah, that emotional stress as well, I can imagine must have been quite, a, quite, a, quite devastating for her, I would imagine. I, I've been thinking about it. I, the conversation with Vanessa happened two days ago as we're recording this mm. portion of the podcast. And I've been thinking about that moment for a couple of days now, because on the one hand, you want the restaurant to say, be very upfront and honest and say, we can't keep right. you safe, right? Right. right. Uh, on the other hand, it sounds like maybe the person who walked her out had not, did not have the best interpersonal skills. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> maybe could have been handled a little bit better because right. what a what a devastating moment for Vanessa coming off of this new diagnosis, right? right? And yeah. and I'm you can just imagine her being freaked out and trying to figure out how life's gonna work. And then having that happen on a first date with someone that she's interested in. And not only was it her first date, it was her first time at a restaurant since yeah. the diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Interesting. Well, thankfully, she married a great guy who's a big champion and um, all's well that ends well. I do think about the role of family and supporting someone as they go through a chronic mm-hmm. illness. And the nice thing about Vanessa is that she has such strong family support. Uh, around her, which makes all of this easier. And and I know of families where they haven't been as supportive of people and it makes everything so much more difficult. And so for Vanessa, I'm just, I, I couldn't be more happy for her to have that support. That's fantastic. I love the story she tells about churning butter with her grandmother. I can't remember what state that was now. In Indiana. Um, Indiana, exactly. And I wondered again, um, with that kind of a background, you know, if her grandparents didn't know, the family wasn't aware. I wonder, I wonder how many incidents she must have had, right? Growing up and being around food and grandma and, you know, before she got the diagnosis. And, you know, I guess the good news is her, it wasn't chronic for her. It wasn't, there was nothing sort of, um, you know, life threatening, but just the idea of having such a complicated condition and for, you know, for, 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 for at least two decades, not knowing and sort of experimenting. And, and I mean, she said she lived with headaches her entire life. And I was like, wow, that must have been really frustrating. And, and you're right that it, it would have required a lot of family support, especially when people just didn't know what the hell you were going through. But they yeah. just knew that, you know, anything, not understanding what the triggers were. So, yeah, that was that was quite interesting, too. And, and, and like you rightly said, family support um, when you don't know what you don't know is absolutely crucial. The other thing that struck me from this conversation was, and I don't know the answer to this. I didn't ask, uh, I didn't think to ask while I was talking with Vanessa, but whether this is something that hits you right away or whether it's something that maybe kind of gradually builds over time. Mm. So, so for example, I'm the older I get, the more lactose intolerant I become. And I grew up not 
I, yeah, as a kid, I was not lactose intolerant at all. Ice cream and milk all the mm-hmm. time and, and yeah. that kind of thing. And so I don't know with, with celiac disease if it's something that, that hits you right away or if it's something that builds gradually over time, but clearly something that that there's an easy way to screen to figure out if, right. if it exists. So we're talking maybe 15, 20 years now. It's remarkable to me to think that, you know, she talked about the um, sort of characteristics of kids with celiac disease, you know, skinny arms and um, extended bellies. And it's just really, you know, and then she, she, she talked about the fact that, you know, there are now, there were no standards at the time. It took parents taking kids to the doctor to ask for a test, for example. It wasn't automatic until I guess she said, 2004, where celiac was classified. Yeah. I, I mean, that that blew me away. Um, it was reclassified as a common disease in 2004. And, and the testing is still yeah. not automatic, which was it's interesting to automatic. me too, right? Because you right. could, right. It, it, it strikes me that something that you could just, if you, especially as, as a medical provider, you knew that that was right. part of some, you know, family history. It would seem like that could just be yeah. made an automatic test. Right. Which is what happened to her. She, you know, she yeah. got all this knowledge at the conferences and she said, you know what, test me for this. And sure enough, she was positive. Yeah. So for something that seems so obvious, it's obvious. I mean, there are side effects, there are things that you can actually look at kids apparently and have an idea that this might be a thing. Yeah, so to think that um, it's still not automatic is, is interesting. But it was interesting to to see how, and I know, of course, she worked with a team, clearly, but she must get a lot of credit for, you know, for how far, I guess, the country has come with regards to um, the reclassification and some of the things, you know, the programs, the notebooks, they've, the handbooks they've put together. It just sounds like she was quite a champion. And has been yeah. a champion uh, since and, her diagnosis. And continues. Yeah, and I love that part of her story, you know, the idea that she embraces this and then goes on to write four cookbooks so far yes, and and does. to do some television work. I love that that idea that let's go figure out how to turn this into something positive. I love what she said about uh, using TikTok, for example, <laughs> and how, you know, it's, it's it, you know, her her campaign, her awareness raising campaign is all the way down to TikTok and and I guess that's, you know, that says a lot about technology and to the you know, the times we live in and the fact that really um, there's almost no excuse not to find things out when something's wrong. And she does it in such a fun, loving, full yeah. of life kind of way. Yeah. The other piece that I hadn't really thought about until she raised it uh, in, in our conversation is the idea of what happens when you're already food insecure. What happens mm. when you don't have the resources um, maybe to pay more for gluten-free products and and how does this how does such a diagnosis impact your family life? And I hadn't really thought that through before, but it's definitely something that's worth thinking about and something that's worth, you know, trying to figure out how to help those folks out. Right. It was actually it's more it was heart-wrenching. I actually wrote this down and, and I, I need to go back and do more research. She said one in ten families where celiac is present are also food insecure, which means they're also poor, but they end up because they can't, in quotes, access gluten-free food, parents intentionally, you know, are harming their kids by giving them foods that they know are not good for them, even when they do have the diagnosis, because they can't afford it. And that, I mean, that, that just, that broke my heart. That's uh, brutal. Know? You think as, about as a parent how how much time and energy you put into thinking about how right. you provide for your children, and exactly. and the stress that you already are under if you don't have the resources to necessarily provide for every meal, 
Right. And then you add something like this on top right. and, and that stress piles on and becomes overwhelming fairly quick. Right. And she talked about challenges with food banks. And I thought, well, it's the U.S., for example, there's food banks. People are aware if grocery stores are stocking gluten free food. You know, of course, food banks are already dealing with that. And, you know, she talks about the fact that, you know, it's obvious stuff like fruit and veg that, don't, that are gluten free. Um, but the cheaper stuff like snacks and breads and pretzels. Um, are the stuff that people donate that, you know, that, you know, the, the less expensive stuff, the less expensive options aren't naturally gluten-free. Um, and then she talked about the fact that those who are aware and those who donate gluten-free food, unfortunately, the banks and the kitchens don't demarcate those for people who need it. It just sort of goes onto the general. So either way, you know, the, they're suffering. Yeah. Because they just don't have access, even when it's there. And food banks are in a, in a are in a little bit of a tough spot because they need shelf stable, long lasting items, of course, right? And so, of fresh course. fruits and vegetables have always posed a little bit of a challenge mm -hmm. for food banks. Food food banks are doing an amazing job in the United States Absolutely. of of trying to figure out how to get more fresh fruits and vegetables uh, to folks mm -hmm. who are food insecure. Uh, yeah. But but that shelf stable stuff is is the stuff that will last for a long time. That makes the the life of a food bank so much easier and right. often gluten can be an issue in those foods. So going back a little to the advocacy work that she did and the fact that um, they were able to, they were able to come up with um, uh, a guidebook. I guess she said they assembled experts in pediatric hospitals, um, a whole bunch of stakeholders, schools, parents, and they came up with this handbook. And I, I guess as a result of that also, schools are now required to serve gluten-free food. But my question was, and I don't, you might know this, I don't know, is, is this for public schools as well? Or was it private schools? It's, it's for, sure it it's for public, public schools. schools. And so the guidebook that she did was for public schools, although she said, you okay. know, a lot of private schools are picking it up and, and adopting it as well. Awesome. A great conversation yeah. with Vanessa. I really enjoyed the time that we had together and uh, enjoyed getting to do it right before the holiday season as families are gathering and people think about trying to prepare food for family and friends and all the different mm -hmm. thought processes that, that go into that. As we released this episode of the podcast. It's the it's two days before Thanksgiving in the United States. So for mm. those of you in the United mm. States that are celebrating Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. And and we'll move into kind of the December holiday season now. Adobe, uh, I think as I think about things to be thankful for at this mm. time of year, I am thankful that you have come on and done this podcast with me. And it's been a lot of fun. Oh. And I look forward to many more episodes with you. Oh, Carter, same here. And if I can just take us back a little bit, one of the great things she said about the holidays and Thanksgiving and how people can plan, um, just to remember, um, she, said, she said some really good things about if you want gluten-free stuff, bring it, make it, um, be a part of the process. The stuff about the stuffing was really interesting. Yeah. Um, if you stuff your turkey, it's got to be gluten-free stuffing. Yeah. Or stuffing on the side. So really practical stuff. I thought about that a lot. It is Thanksgiving. Um, I'm in a country where we don't celebrate Thanksgiving, but I do as a family tradition because, you know, that's, I was in the States most of my sort of young adult life and we started Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving to you, Carter, and your family. And I look forward to picking this up after the holidays. 
Key and the Kite podcast was created and hosted by Carter Hedrick and co-hosted by me, Adobe Oniwinde. Our social media manager is Laurel Hedrick. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please help us out and let other people know. You can also rate us and provide a review on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Key and Kite Pod. Music for the Key and the Kite is written and performed by the A.V. Grouse Band. The first album, The Devil May Care, reached number 10 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Their new album, Tell Till Heart, debuted at number 7 on the Billboard Blues album chart. Learn more at avgrouseband.com. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Please join us again in two weeks.